HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Samantha Garner, and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Cheeselandian because I take cheese seriously, just like they do in Wisconsin. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. This week on Meet and 3, it's our 100th episode. We're breaking the mold to kick off our mini-series on global trade. Vegetable, fruits, grains, and cooking technique pass from one region to another. And that's interesting that that region transformed that ingredient into their own specialties. There was a time where black pepper was a luxury. And we know that because people were willing to invest huge amounts of money to go to the Spice Islands in order to get uh, pepper. <laughs> you know, stuff we take for granted now. You know, you go into a restaurant and it's free. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us for this hour of Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host, Capri Cafaro. On today's show, we are going to indulge in ice cream cocktails, learn what makes a Wisconsin old-fashioned different, and what cider pairs best with cheese. My guest is an expert on all things food and drink, so she's the perfect person to guide us through this audio taste test of Midwestern drinking culture. I am pleased to welcome fellow Midwesterner and author, Jeanette Hurt. Jeanette has written 12 books, including, most importantly for this episode, Wisconsin Cocktails and The Joy of Cider, all you ever wanted to know about making and drinking hard cider. We're so excited to have you on the show. And given the fact that you've written so many different types of books uh, related to food and, and beverages, how did you get into this kind of writing? Well, it's one of those things, if you want to go way back, I use, my dream when I was seven years old was to write yes, a doggy. Yes, let's go way back. <laughs> a doggy cookbook. My parents used to let me cook dog food with uh, spices on the stove. And let me tell you, my mom tells me it smelled really awful. But that kind of I got was just my- going to ask that question. How did that smell? <laughs> Maybe I don't want to know. Well, my dog Sandy loved it. And she was actually the perfect, um, well, I'd call her a person, but she's a dog. She was a dog to cook for because it didn't matter what I made. She was delighted. So I used to call it doggy delights. Now, I'm really glad I am Aww. more of a human cookbook author and not a doggy cookbook author. Um, it's a lot more fun to make drinks and dishes for people than dogs. Um, most of my dogs will And eat probably things. a lot less smelly. <laughs> yes. But I've always had an interest in food and drink. But I went to journalism school and my first job out of school was as a Chicago police reporter for the City News Bureau. And I worked the midnight shift, at, which meant at 5 a.m. I used to go over to the morgue. And my editor told me mm. that I should bring donuts because they'll be better sources. And what I figured is, well, why bring them donuts? Why don't I just make them homemade brownies? So I would bake brownies and bring them to the <laughs> morgue. And sometimes I'd arrive the same time the bodies would arrive. And that was always interesting. But I had really good sources at the morgue because 
and I could call them well, anytime. That means you must have had really good brownies. <laughs> I did. I made turtle brownies for them, which they loved, with caramel and Ooh. pecans. And then I moved on and I worked in newspapers in Milwaukee. And I started freelancing for the food desk because it was kind of boring covering board meetings and writing about dead people. And I always liked food. Then I be, when I became a freelance writer, I decided that what I was going to do is what I was mostly interested in, which was food and drink. And food is actually how I got into drink, because if you really get into food, you go to wine and beer pairing, pairing dinners, and then you start getting curious. So that led to my book, The Complete Idiot's Guide to Wine and Food Pairing. And that's kind of how my books have happened. I'm interested in this. Maybe I'll write an article. Mm. Well, maybe there's a book. And my first two books were The Complete Idiot's Guide to the Cheeses of the World and The Cheeses of Wisconsin, which I wrote in the same year, which I don't recommend, especially for your very first time writing a book, to be writing not one but two books. But I have done that since. So I guess I don't take my own advice, but I find some things irresistible <laughs> to write about, and then I just write them and or pitch a book idea to my agent. Um, the Cider Book happened because I had just finished my book, Drink Like a Woman, and I was looking to do another drink book, but what I was really curious about was cider because it was just all of a sudden everywhere. It's, well, it's not exactly everywhere. It is one of the fastest growing segments in the, the alcoholic beverage realm, but it's still such a very small part of it. So I pitched it to my agent. I love cider. Maybe I'm the Venn diagram intersection between drink like a woman and people that drink cider. So I don't know. Yes. I, I love, I love cider. And when I was researching drink like a woman, one of the things I researched was the history of women and alcohol and women and cocktails. And it was really interesting to me that it is possible that the inventor of the cocktail was a woman named Catherine Hustler, who invented it during the American Revolution. And oh, wow. And that sort of goes into cider because that was another thing. Cider was our original American beverage and it, everybody drank it. You know, people talk about Thomas Jefferson and how he was so big on wines. Well, he did grow grapes, but not very well. But he he had uh, some slaves who were amazing at growing cider apples. And his his cider apples were some of the most sought after. Well, hold that thought there, because I want to come back to cider later in the in the program. Um, so before we go too far down, you know, the, the cider apple trail, if you will, first of all, I also want to say that, uh, you know, your, your research on women and alcohol is just giving me a lot of ideas for, you know, maybe another episode that I'd love to bring you back for at some point, because I think there's a lot of interesting history and background, uh, of, of women throughout history that are absolutely, you know, overlooked and unsung heroes, uh, you know, in one way, shape or form and in, in the culinary arena. So, um, you're giving me ideas for, for other episodes. So thank you for that. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I, I want to talk about your book, uh, before we get into cider about Wisconsin cocktails. I've, I've spent some time in Wisconsin. I absolutely, uh, love America's Dairyland. Um, and have had a chance to have some of the unique um, offerings when it comes to cocktails in Wisconsin. I don't think a lot of people would think that, um, you know, Wisconsin is somehow, um, you know, a leader in uh, mixology. <laughs> but, but you know, there there is except some... Except it is. Exa exactly. There's some really interesting history uh, behind that. So you told us a little bit about, you know, what sparked your interest in food writing and, you know, sparking these ideas for, from articles. What about Wisconsin cocktails specifically? What sparked that idea for that well, specific book? I live in Wisconsin and I write about booze. So I'm very aware of the cocktail culture here as well as, as well as the history of cocktails here in Wisconsin. And actually, it was three years ago last month that I was at a writer's conference in Chicago, 
and I signed up to meet with an editor from the University of Wisconsin Press. Now, I basically signed up Mm -hmm. because she's from Wisconsin, and I'm like, well, I'm from Wisconsin. I don't have any ideas per se. Um, Again, this is right when my Drink Like a Woman book came out. And so I met with her, and I didn't have a book idea, but I started talking about my Drink Like a Woman book. And then we started talking about Wisconsin drinking culture. And of course, the conversation turned to the old fashioned. But then my editor, the editor said, oh, yeah, but we also have our own Bloody Marys. And what about ice cream drinks? And before my 10 minutes were up, I had basically gotten a book deal Um, that I hadn't planned, but I was very interested in. And the following Monday, I got an email from her colleague who is in charge of the culinary books at University of Wisconsin Press. And he asked me for an outline. And then suddenly I went down the rabbit hole of Wisconsin drinks. Now, I had written about Wisconsin cocktails before in various articles, one of which I wrote for the Tales of the Cocktail website about the Wisconsin old fashioned and the, uh, and you got to tell our listeners about the Wisconsin old fashioned. Well, the Wisconsin old fashioned, if you go any place else outside of Wisconsin and you order an old fashioned and you'll get a cocktail, a very boozy cocktail that's made with whiskey, usually rye bitters, sugar, and maybe an orange peel for a garnish. Very simple, very elegant, very boozy. It's the same all over the world. In Wisconsin, if you order an old-fashioned, the bartender will ask you a series of questions. Do you want brandy or whiskey? (laughs) And do you want sweet or sour? The Wisconsin old-fashioned, as such, usually is brandy, but it can be made with whiskey, bourbon, rye. I've seen them made with rum. I've seen them made with vodka. Your, Your booze of choice... Then you, the, the bartender starts by putting bitters, sugar, oranges, and cherries at the bottom of a glass and muddling it. And then the booze gets added. And then it is topped with either sweet soda, like Sprite, or sour soda, like right. Squirt. Or you could have just club soda, or you could have it ordered press, which is half sweet soda and half club soda. And press is short for Presbyterian. And it's a wonderful cocktail. But Interesting. Com- Why? But it is completely <laughs> different from an old-fashioned anywhere else. The other thing... Well, I don't think you'd find an old-fashioned with squirt any place outside of the Midwest, no, let me tell you that. No. I don't even know if people know what squirt is. I happen to love squirt, but I, I find that, you know, it's something that's sophi- as sophisticated as an old-fashioned being made with something as, uh, I don't know. Um, Pedestrian? As Midwestern, in my view, at least, as uh, as as, as uh, a squirt, which is a lemon-lime soda that looks quite cloudy for those, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with squirt. Um, but I wanted to ask you, Um, as we're still talking about the old-fashioned, why brandy? Why brandy specifically in Wisconsin? Well, the story goes, and let me tell you the story and then how I debunked it, because uh, for the longest time, people said, well, it's because Corbell was at the Columbia Exposition in Chicago in 1893, and something like a quarter to a third of the U.S. population at that time went to the World's Fair. And of course, Wisconsin having four railroads that took passengers into Chicago, probably a lot of Wisconsinites went and Corbell displayed their brandy there. So the good Wisconsinites tried it and decided that's how they wanted to drink their old fashions. And it sounds interesting and it sounds plausible and there's truth in it, but it's, it's, that's not what happened. And when I decided I was going to write this book, I decided, well, I have to confirm this or not, because anytime I've called Corbell, their spokesperson will tell you, well, we can't confirm that. Well, they they can't confirm it because it's not true, but they also can't don't want to deny it because it gives them a lot of publicity. So the first thing I did was research. I I did the modern day equivalent of researching more than 200 years of booze history in the Midwest. 
And I basically just scoured all of these old, old newspapers and any mention of brandy, any mention of cocktail. And there were two things I discovered first. One, back in 1895, there was a quote unquote cocktail revolution going on in Milwaukee. Apparently, the young German men, for them, beer was not enough and they needed something stronger called Mm. the cocktail. And the writer of this article went on to explain what cocktails were and what these young men were drinking. And the they did drink a brandy cocktail called the Bracer, but the most popular cocktail in Milwaukee at that time was called the Old Fashioned. And it was an old-fashioned like everybody else. Rye, bitters, sugar. Aha. Uh-huh. So my question was then. Okay, more than a hundred years ago, we drank old fashions like everybody else. So what happened? Right. The second thing I discovered, I found an old book that was published in 1896. It was from the California Commission on the State Pavilion, and it listed everybody and everything that was displayed at that at that pavilion. And I found out, yes, Corbell was there. Yes, they had their brandy. But so did 25 other winemakers from California, some of which displayed not one, but four brandies. So that was interesting. Finally, I, I continued to research. And what I discovered were a couple of articles, which then I traced back and found other historic evidence. But there was an article published in the Sunday Milwaukee Journal in 1975. And it basically asked the question, well, why brandy? Why is Wisconsin the biggest consumer of brandy in the country? And this reporter dug deep and found a man who at that time had been involved in the liquor distribution business in Wisconsin for 37 years. And he said, well, yeah, we drank more brandy than anybody else, but two times nothing is still nothing. And so the reporter said, well, what happened? And what happened was after World War II, there was a lot of bad booze going around. Now, part of that was distilleries would voluntarily Hmm. shut down so that grain could be shipped to Europe. And part of it was because you had all this bad booze, people were getting arrested, at least in Wisconsin, they would get arrested or fined if they put bad booze into good booze bottles or lied about labeling. Um, And there were all sorts of weird stuff going on. But this guy who is in the liquor distribution business said, yeah, well, in 1947, a distributor here found a cache of these barrels of Christian Brother brandy that were really good, and they bought them all up. So a whole bunch of brandy came into Wisconsin in one big gush, and then... If you are ordering mm-hmm. an old fashioned or a Manhattan or anything in Wisconsin, you could get it made with good brandy or bad bourbon, good brandy or rot gut rum. What do you think people are going to take in their cocktails? Well, they're going to order brandy. Yeah, it's not going to be rot gut rum. No, but they're going to keep ordering brandy. And then suddenly we're drinking all this brandy and we don't know why. Our grandparents drank it, our parents drank it, we drank it, but we don't know why. And what I also found interesting, because I found that one article, then I found that confirmed by another article in the 60s, and then I found this little tiny news brief called a Wham Doodle, and I love the name Wham Doodle, which talked (laughs) about a Midwestern liquor distribution company buying up enough brandy to float a boat. So that confirmed what this man had said. The other thing I found is the Milwaukee Journal, their old advertising department used to survey its readers. And in their annual 
readers survey, they would ask them, well, what is your favorite toothpaste? What's your favorite grocery store? And of course, what do you drink at home? And this was valuable, not just for knowing the readership, but also then advertisers could say, hey, we sell the most popular toothpaste. Mm -hmm. Well, in the mid-1940s, uh, men, and of course they surveyed the men who drank at home because of course women did not drink, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, the men, the number one <laughs> liquor that they drank at home was whiskey. But by the 1950s and 60s, the same survey wasn't just asking about what liquor, they were asking specifically what was your favorite brandy to purchase. So within a, uh, less than 10 years, suddenly we're drinking all this brandy and we never stopped. We've solved at least a little bit of the mystery behind the ascension of brandy uh, in, in Wisconsin. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit about, you mentioned women drinking. I want to talk a little bit about that and some other famous Wisconsin cocktails when we return. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. My name is Samantha Garner, and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Cheeselandian because I take cheese seriously, just like they do in Wisconsin. Cheeselandia is a community for loud and proud cheese lovers brought to life by Wisconsin Cheese. I know that I can always cook amazing food with their cheese, and it's even good enough just to snack on. As a Cheeselandia member, I know there is always a supportive community behind me who always gets as excited as I do about cheese. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. Check us out on Instagram at Cheeselandia. And we're back with Jeanette Hurt, author of Wisconsin Cocktails and the Joy of Cider. Jeanette, I want to keep talking about Wisconsin cocktails. We were just talking about uh, brandy and the famous Wisconsin Old Fashioned. Um, but I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into to history. Uh, you seem to have spent quite a bit of time, and it sounds like your journalistic skills, digging deep in the microfiche uh, about some of this history. Um, and uh, I, I'm curious to know uh, if and how prohibition played a role in the development of Wisconsin's famous cocktails. Post-prohibition, Bartenders used to call an old-fashioned, the slang term was a fruit salad because of all the fruit put in the drink. And that you can directly trace to, to Prohibition because, of course, in Prohibition, there was a lot of bad booze. And what do you do with bad booze to cover up its taste? Well, you add a bunch of sugar and you add a bunch of fruit juice. And maybe you add some soda that's kind of how we got the other component of the Wisconsin Old Fashioned, which is the soda and the muddled fruit and the sugars and bitter that goes into that part of the cocktail. The other interesting thing I found in research is post-prohibition, there were a bunch of bartending, uh, quote-unquote, professors who would tour the country and the Midwest. And if you owned a tavern here in Wisconsin and you didn't remember how to make cocktails, you came to these classes. And the uh, hmm. one professor who came to Milwaukee talked about how women were important to tavern success. He said, wherever the ladies go, the men are sure to follow. So he said, it doesn't matter if you don't like the way women order their cocktails. You please them and you will get <laughs> men coming in. Um, the other interesting thing, this professor, his name was quote unquote Professor Stone. He basically said that it was due to the influence of women that the old fashioned cocktail has become a combination of fruit salad and snort. Uh, what is what is snort? I think he was just saying fruit salad and snort, meaning snort disdain. I see. He thought that that was not the proper way to make an old fashioned, but if that's the way somebody wanted it, you better give the give your customers what they want. 
So it was, and that was just a really kind of interesting story. The other thing I found with Prohibition is there was an article about this bartender who had been bartending in Milwaukee since 1893. And he thought that bartending was ruined by both prohibition and women. And his his quote was, in those days, I knew how to mix only 12 drinks. Now I must know how to mix more than 100 mostly silly concoctions with a lot of fruit. Well, well, well. And he said, it's an outgrowth of prohibition and women. We old timers don't like to see women at bars. Oh, jeez. Like, too bad, old timer. I was going to say, I, uh, that, that ship sailed, my friend. That ship sailed. Too bad. Dude, you're left in the 19th century, and uh, we'll, we'll keep it that way. Speaking of, I recall correctly, and looking through your book, and I don't want to digress too much, but I recall seeing something in Wisconsin Cocktails about the Cosmo, the Cosmopolitan. Yes. A- am I recalling this correctly? And, and when the co- how the Cosmo came about? Because a lot of people do think of the Cosmo as this you know, drink that, that, you know, sophisticated women drink in a place like New York. They associate it with sex in the city. You mentioned that uh, in the book as well. Um, Could you talk a little bit briefly about the Cosmo and maybe its anchor to this whole story of Wisconsin cocktails? Well, it's one of those things. A lot of these cocktails, if you talk about ice cream drinks or the Bloody Mary, didn't necessarily originate here in Wisconsin, But we put our own twist on them and we made them our own. And if we like something, we continue to like it, even if it goes out of style. And in the early 200s or the early, I mean, the early 2000s or the early aughts with Sex in the City and you would see these martini bars with not just Cosmos, but Apple Teenies and Lemon Drop Martinis mm-hmm. and all of these fancy, vo- usually vodka, fruity drinks. In Wisconsin, the Cosmo came and it never left, which I find very, very interesting that you can go to these supper clubs and you can go to these old-fashioned saloons slash taverns And they will have 20 or 30 drink martini drinks, which are all sort of derivatives of the Cosmo. And they're still popular. The other fun, funny thing I found is you talk to bartenders in areas like Lake Geneva or Elkhart Lake or Kohler, where there are a lot of tourists who come into town. And the bartenders I talked to said, well, people go on vacation and they want something special and they often want something sweet. And it's they're They remain very popular here, which I think is pretty funny and pretty interesting and so very <laughs> Wisconsin. Well, uh, us Midwesterners are creatures of habit. And, you know, I, I think we get attached to a certain way we do things uh, across uh, America's heartland, and that includes the Bloody Mary is in the book as well, Wisconsin Cocktails. And Wisconsin's version is very specific. Um, what's the deal with with um, a, a Wisconsin Bloody Mary? What makes it stand out? Well, there are two things. One is when you order a Bloody Mary, if even if it's just the the basic house Bloody Mary, you won't just get a single sad pickle or a couple of olives and a a lemon wedge. You will get an entire veritable meal on top. You'll get usually cheese of some sort, usually beef or bacon, a bunch of pickled vegetables, sometimes a giant shrimp or a prawn, and then usually there are special things like a burger or a slice of fried mac and cheese or brisket or sometimes even an entire roasted or fried chicken on top. 
That definitely, you know, if you remember those commercials from the 80s, uh, looks like a soup, eats like a meal. I think in this case, it looks like a cocktail. It eats like a meal. I'm pretty sure when I saw, um, when I was in Wisconsin, I saw one with like a, a cheeseburger slider on top of it. So <laughs> yes. that's, that's serious yes. business. So that is part of it. And that actually can be traced to a bar in Milwaukee called Sobelman's. And the guy who took over Sobelman's just randomly stuck a burger one day and it took off. And then suddenly people went crazy for it. So he started doing crazier things. And then other bars started imitating. Now, I will say, before he stuck the burger, people regularly threw a bunch of things. You'll get a big stalk of celery. You'll get a pickle. You'll get on. You'll get olives. You'll get a whole bunch of things on top. But the burger kind of pushed it into an even more over-the-top direction, and that hasn't let up. The other key to a Wisconsin Bloody Mary is it is served with a chaser, a beer chaser or a schnitt, as it's sometimes called. And what I think is humorous is I'll read these travel articles about if you're going to go to Wisconsin and order a Bloody Mary, order it like a native and ask for a beer chaser. And see, that's the thing. If you're a Wisconsin neighbor, <laughs> native, you expect you don't have to order the it. beer chaser. You don't order it. It comes with it. And one of my favorite stories is I interviewed this award-winning bartender from Kenosha, and he talked about how he was presenting to these women, and they ordered a each ordered a Bloody Mary, and the one woman earlier told him she didn't drink beer, so he did not serve her her beer chaser. But when her Bloody came without a beer chaser. She asked where the beer chaser was. So apparently she didn't drink beer, but she did drink the beer chaser <laughs> with her Bloody Mary. Oh, that's good. Um, you know, I guess, you know, I'm not a huge Bloody Mary fan, but, uh, you know, I think maybe I would drink the beer chaser and pawn off the Bloody Mary to somebody else. Um, and I was not familiar with the Red Robin. And I feel like this, is this like kind of the precursor to the Bloody Mary? It is. It's an interesting thing. When I was researching my book, Drink Like a Woman, I interviewed Marcy Skronsky. God rest her soul. She passed away last year. But I also interviewed her for my Wisconsin Cocktails book. And Marcy, at age 93, was, I think, the oldest working bartender that I knew of. And in her bar, The Holler House, she had, there's this old antique sign that dates back to the early 1900s, which her late father-in-law had purchased from another older bar. And one of the drinks listed was this Red Robin. And for five cents, you could order it. And I asked her, well, what's a Red Robin? And she said it was tomato juice and beer. And hmm. that sort of is a precursor. And that also explains with the beer chaser some people will sip it as they're sipping their Bloody Mary. Other people will drink it afterwards. But technically what you're supposed to do is as you drink your Bloody Mary down, you're supposed to pour the beer chaser into the cocktail, which gives ah. it a little extra fizz and flavor. And um, But really you can drink your beer chaser any way you want it. Well, you're definitely giving our listeners a lot of ideas for their next uh, Bloody Mary, uh, whether they're making it at home or, or going out to brunch or wherever, uh, airport bar, if you know, when, if and when we start to travel in a regular manner again, uh, you know, lots of different ways to, to make a Bloody Mary. And I guess there's so many ways that Wisconsin uh, doctors up their Bloody Marys that they have competitions. Yes. You know, how often does this happen? You know, what can somebody expect from a Bloody Mary contest? How steep is the competition? Well, usually they'll have anywhere from 10 to 20 different bars and restaurants competing. The one Bloody Mary competition I was fortunate enough to judge, they judged oh, wow. it on the, the taste of the Bloody Mary. But the other thing they usually also judged it on was the garnish. Now, in my mind, an award-winning Bloody Mary has a really good basic cocktail, 
which means there's some depth to it. It's it's not just tomato juice or clamato or a mixture of it and a little bit of spice. It's got some depth. It's got some layers of seasoning. The second portion, of course, is the garnish. And a really good Bloody Mary that I, I've found usually also has a rim that's a little bit spicy, might also have a little bit of honey mm-hmm. or sugar. So it's got a sweet, spicy rim. And then, of course, the garnishes. And a really good garnish has both veg, has usually vegetable, has a dairy component, cheese, cheese curds, cheese whips, cheese sticks, or just some really, really good cheese. Cut it into a triangle, put a, a slice in the middle, and you can stick the wedge right on the glass. Or, and then usually, but you don't have to have it if you are vegetarian, but a beef stick or beef jerky, or as I said, bacon or brisket, or if you want to go crazy, mm-hmm. throw a hamburger on top. <laughs> That's, that is a lot. And, you know, you mentioned many permutations of cheese. Um, all my audience knows how much I love cheese because I talk about it, I swear, any chance I get. Um, so, you know, we often think of Wisconsin, you know, Wisconsin cheese, the cheese heads of the Green Bay Packers. And of course, it's America's dairy land. So I can't, um, you know, I'd be remiss not to uh, ask before we wrap up about Wisconsin cocktails and move on to cider in the next segment. I got to ask about the ice cream cocktail, um, much more than just a milkshake. Uh, tell us about what what is an ice cream cocktail besides a boozy milkshake? Well, it's an entity unto itself. If you go to any supper club, they will serve a lot of ice cream drinks. And once one goes by, usually 20 people will order one. (laughs) They're huge. Some of them are more like they come out of giant mixing machines, sort of like soft serve and booze together. So you, some of them are so thick, you have to eat them with a spoon, not a straw. They usually are, they're garnished. If they're chocolate based, there will be drizzles or sprinkles or entire chocolate bars stuck on top or cake pops. There's usually a mound of whipped cream, sometimes a cherry on top but sometimes not. I've seen people also decorate them with fruity pebbles. If it's a fruity ice cream drink, they're really boozy. They are really bad for you and they really taste (laughs) so, so good. Um, This goes back and it's tied in with the supper club history, but it also, in the 1940s and 50s, cream drinks were popular. We're talking about Brandy Alexander's and Grasshoppers. And in Wisconsin, if you talk to people who, I interviewed the woman who, her grandparents opened the Dell Bar, which is halfway between Wisconsin Dells and Baraboo. And the original recipes, there were some for cream drinks and some for ice cream drinks. So... And at some point in the 60s, I would say that's when ice cream drinks took precedence. They may have started out, you could do it with ice cream if you wanted to, but you didn't have to. The other component to this history is Wisconsin is the birthplace of the blender. And blenders were not just sold for home use. They were also sold and marketed to bars. So a lot of bars in Wisconsin had blenders on premise, which you have to do if you're going to make ice cream drinks. I love the fact that there's this industrial uh, connection. There is. Because we we often, you know, I mean, the Midwest is also a big manufacturing hub, or at least was for for decades. And the fact that there is this interesting sort of industrial connection of the birthplace of the blender um, and... And it bringing to life uh, the other big export, right? Which is which is dairy is just a great uh, combination of of what it means to be Wisconsin. The other thing I would say with ice cream drinks, if you're going to make them at home, put the booze in, then put the ice cream before you blend it. 
that's how they do it at supper clubs and cocktail lounges in Wisconsin. It's booze first and then ice cream. And it's, I think ice cream drinks, as I said, they're a really good example of we take something that's not really good for you and we make it worse for your health, but it tastes really, really, <laughs> really good. Well, that's a really good pro tip. I, I like that. Pro tips for the, for the listeners at home. Booze first, ice cream second. And Jeanette, we're going to have you right back to share some different tips about cider and of course, cheese. We'll be right back. I'm Lisa Held, a food and agriculture journalist and the host of The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I know it's difficult to find reliable information on where your food comes from and how that relates to the issues you care about, like the climate crisis, racial justice, and health. With Peeled, my new Substack newsletter, I'm going to make it easier for you. At Peeled, we'll pull back every story's shiny outer layer and go straight to the core. Each week, I'll send you an email with original reporting and expert analysis. I'll make it interesting, I promise. And together, we'll get better at making delicious, healthy choices that align with our values. Subscribe at peeled.substack.com. Welcome back to Eat Your Heartland Out. Uh, I'm your host, Capri Cafaro, and we are still here with author Jeanette Hurt, who is sharing a little bit about Wisconsin cocktails and now um, a little bit more about cider, uh, as she is also the author of the book, The Joy of Cider. So, Jeanette, I really love this book. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I love cider. Um, and, um, you know, later on in the season, we're actually going to have, I'm going to have a whole episode dedicated to cider making, um, and everything that goes along with it. Um, so I figured it would be great to get a head start on that and have you give us a little bit of an overview, if you can, a little Cliff Notes version, uh, for those of us who are old enough to remember those Cliff Notes before there was Google, um, (laughs) about the history and the process of cider making in the United States and, uh, particularly in the Midwest? Well, one thing that I found interesting is cider is the original American drink. And it was something people drank all over, and they usually drank it locally. Cider was something that you'd buy it from a cider maker or an apple grower who would make cider on the side. And one key thing to keep in mind, traditionally, cider is made with cider apples, which do not look as appetizing as culinary apples. And some of them Mm -hmm. are tannic, some of them are sour. A good cider maker usually uses a blend of different apples to get the right flavor for the cider. Now, however, unless you own your own orchards or have really good access to farmers who grow Cider apples, a lot of modern cider is made with culinary apples simply because that's what they have available. So that is a little bit about that. What I find interesting is as cider is gaining more interest, what is really interesting is all the little unique local cider makers who are making cider Mm -hmm. and they're selling it locally, which is what happened years ago. Now, what really, you know, if you go back to the founding of our country and pre-founding, apples were one thing that grew really well. So people would make cider with them. In fact, the whole story about Johnny Appleseed, which I love the fact that (laughs) kindergartners everywhere learn the story about Johnny Appleseed. Except they don't learn that he was planting the apples not for eating, but for drinking. I will say my son did, however, learn that it was for cider. Um, That is one of the things that is interesting. But the other thing is cider was waning in popularity as beer grew in popularity. And then, of course, prohibition hit. And one mm-hmm. of the things federal agents did is they would they would cut down the cider trees 
in orchards or the farmers who were growing the cider apples, they would, they would cut them down and plant culinary apples because that's what they needed to do to survive. Now, one of the most interesting things I found, though, is there are people at universities and cider geeks everywhere who are tracking down these rare and old apples. And I think some of them, there is a, I believe, at the uh, a university system in New Jersey, they are trying to track down and cultivate some of these old, ancient cider-making apples and apple trees. And that's kind of interesting because New Jersey used to be considered the champagne of ciders. Huh. But if you move west... Some of the big cider-making regions in the Midwest, there's Michigan, which is, I think, the third largest producer or second largest producer of apples in the country. And Mm -hmm. you also have Ohio and you also have Wisconsin. All three states have some very strong apple-growing traditions and some really strong local small cideries that are making some incredible and interesting and sometimes very funky ciders. Some use naturally fermented yeast. Other people use some really interesting blends of spices and herbs. And you can get some really, really fun ciders. And we're going to talk to uh, some of these folks that do make these really interesting uh, herb-infused uh, ciders um, later in the season. So I, I, I'm really excited to share those stories with our listeners because it really is like a, a craft and an art for the little bit that I've learned. And I certainly don't know nearly as much as you, as you've done so much research and have authored a book. But it seems to me that making cider is a lot like making wine. You know, you have to have these like specific blends and uh, it, uh, there's a lot that goes into cultivating the appropriate mix of, um, you know, agriculture, uh, raw product, and then the process uh, to, to get the right, um, the right mix for the perfect cider. Um, so I, I am always on the hunt for the perfect cider and I will continue to keep my eye peeled wherever I go. Um, I did not realize you could also find cider references in literature uh, be, between the page, between yes. the covers of a book. And I, I learned that inside your book. Um, and I'm sure that our audience would love to know um, about the intersection of literature and cider, too. Well, it was really, that was one of those interesting things. The more you research and you go down the rabbit hole or the cider hole in this case, to find things. And it was interesting um, to find out Washington Irving and the whole story of the Headless Horseman and the references to cider there. And what also was interesting to me is it wasn't something, you know, people will write these romantic poems about wine or write these things about hard liquor But cider was just sort of everywhere, and it wasn't, it's like you'd think of water. It's something that was there, and it was more of an afterthought. So to find the references I did, I had to kind of dig deep, and that was fun. Um, This isn't a literature reference, but one of the funniest things I discovered, of course, was uh, the, the ride of Paul Revere, and you know, you, again, you study it and you hear that Paul Revere was writing into town to say the British are coming, the British are coming. Well, he did write into town, but usually where he disseminated the information was at, of course, taverns, because taverns were the local gathering spot. That's where people would find out information. You couldn't pick up your phone to find out the news. You'd go to the tavern or send somebody there. And I'm, it's just a supposition, but I am assuming he was fueled at the taverns that he was stopping at. And it perhaps he was the, his whole ride was fueled by cider. I can't prove that, but I think that's an interesting supposition. 
I'd like to follow that uh, folklore and, and I'll buy it. I think it's it's a great one that, and I will follow that supposition as well. Before I let you go, and we've taken up so much of your time, um, I have to ask just for a few more pro tips on what kind of cheese you would pair with, with specific ciders. So just give us just a couple good examples to round us out uh, before before we let you go. Well, first off, cider is one of those beverages that pairs almost perfectly with any cheese. It's effervescence, the fact that it is made from apples. And what do you often see on cheese plates? If it's not grapes, you're going to see apples or pears and sometimes berries. But the the apples, the the fact that cider is made from fermenting apples is is just a natural pairing. If you want to go a little bit deeper, if I don't know what sort of, if I'm not familiar with the cider I'm drinking, a cheese that will almost always pair with cider is a Gouda. It's, it's often Hmm. got apple notes to it. If you get a really good one, like Marika Gouda, um, from Thorpe, Wisconsin, it's, a young Gouda or a medium-aged Gouda will pair very well. That said, if you're drinking French cider, I would go with Camembert and Brie because those are classical pairings. If you're going to go with something like a washed rind, like a stinky cheese, then you're going to want to go with a farmhouse cider, something with some backbone to stand up to the cheese. Cheddar, well, English style. Ciders go very well with an English style cheese. I think goat cheeses go very well with more delicate ciders and lighter, more delicate uh, beverages. Again, lighter, more delicate food. Blue cheeses, you're going to want to try dessert ciders or ice ciders because Hmm. that sweet and salty component goes really well. And then if you go into flavored ciders, like I have had some lavender flavored ciders, well, then you want a cheese that has lavender. And a good example of that would be a driftless honey and lavender sheep's milk cheese. Pairs beautifully with any lavender cider. And, you know, I've even seen pumpkin spice flavored ciders. I've seen pumpkin spice flavored cheese. This all sounds unbelievable. You have made me totally hungry. I'm sure our audience as well and and definitely have uh, motivated me to, instead of doing maybe a, a wine and cheese pairing next time around when I have uh, people over for a gathering, um, again, and when we're able to do those sort of things in a, in a, a you know responsible and, and safe way, I want to do a cider and cheese pairing. And we will definitely turn to your book, uh, The Joy of Cider, to do that and, and maybe whip up some Wisconsin cocktails as well. Jeanette, thank you so much for uh, taking time to be on Eat Your Heartland out today. Eat Your Heartland out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.